We're not going to talk about SpaceX again, are we? Uh, yeah. Oops. Wait a minute, are we recording? Um, yep. Oh, sorry, folks. This is Talking Space, episode 1503. We're recording on April 30th of 2023. And of course, this is Mark Ratterman. Unfortunately, if you heard our previous episode, you heard me do kind of the same thing. But let's go ahead with the rest of the team and go ahead with Gene. Hey, Mark. Good evening. Welcome. I'm I'm happy to be here. And uh, it looks like it's going to be the three amigos here. But a new amigo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is true. So we got a new participant. Uh, we've been talking for several months, and we finally got our schedule, schedules together. So go ahead and tell us about yourself, Larry. So my name is Larry Heron, um, new member of the Talking Space team. I guess uh, the story that I like to tell is that uh, I, my first job was as an astronaut at about age 10, uh, in the uh, privacy of my bedroom with uh, <laughs> with a whole bunch of uh, boxes of, uh, you know, my mom's old shoe boxes covered with white paper where I drew exact renderings as be- best I could make them of uh, uh, the instrument panel for the lunar module on the Apollo spacecraft uh, and been a follower of the space program ever since. Uh, at one point... I got uh, a little bit disenchanted, like at the end of the shuttle program, I guess I got somewhat disenchanted with uh, the end of what I perceived as the space program uh, and was kind of upset for a few years at uh, the infiltration of commercial interests into what had been a strictly NASA domain before. But after several years, I kind of managed to get over that because I thought, well, this is, this is the way it's going. So if you want to, uh, if you want to participate, if you want to, you know, be a part of it and follow what's going on, you're going to be following commercial programs as well as NASA sponsored programs. So, so that's what I ended up doing. And so here I am. Larry, I had to smile because you sound like a, a just a kindred spirit because I, I did the same darn thing when I was five years old. <laughs> Yeah, I used to, I would get, I would get the, you know, the time life books you could get from the library about the space program. And they had great pictures of the instrument panel. So you could make them look pretty exact. It was fun. Indeed. So we're going to be doing different things at different times on this show. We've got uh, one item of news that we don't want to leave out. So Larry is going to be introducing that and then we'll go on into our main topic. So Larry, take it away. Thanks, Mark. So uh, what do you think of when I say the words reusable rocket-powered space plane? Now, the first thing I think most people would think of is the space shuttle, right? Well, a New New Zealand-based company is trying to change that perception. Dawn Aerospace has built a space plane they call the MK2 Aurora. I think that stands for Mark II, so that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, Dawn first flew the Mark II Aurora using jet engines in 2021. Uh, Now, in in the last episode, we talked about two missions hitting the big 5-0 milestones. We talked about 50 orbits for Juno and 50 flights for Ingenuity. Well, the MK2 Aurora just finished its 50th flight as well. As I understand it, 47 of those flights were jet-powered, but the last three were rocket-powered. During the last three days of March, the Mark II Aurora finished a three-day series of rocket-powered test flights where the team was able to conduct one flight per day 
for three straight days. This made the Mark II Aurora what Don Aerospace believes is, quote, the most rapidly reusable rocket-powered aircraft in operation. Almost sounds like it's too good to be true, right? So what's the catch? What's different about this aircraft? Well, for starters, it's unmanned and remotely piloted. It's also a very sleek, streamlined aircraft that's only 15 feet long. That said, Dawn Aerospace says it's going to be capable of carrying payloads up to 11 pounds to the boundary of space for customers. Other interesting capabilities of the spacecraft is that it can be certified as an aircraft, at least in some jurisdictions, New Zealand being among them. Although Dawn's CEO, Stefan Powell, acknowledges that, quote, a different approach may be needed in other jurisdictions. And so with this certification, the Mark II Aurora can take off and land from regular everyday airports anywhere on Earth at will with no regulatory oversight for individual takeoffs and landings. It wouldn't be prudent to try to operate that at big airports like LAX, for example, as they're just too busy. But Powell says that there are hundreds of smaller airports around the world at which they could easily operate. Don's goal is to be able to do this twice a day per aircraft on a consistent basis. So if you look at SpaceX's Falcon 9, the quickest turnaround time it has achieved so far is 21 days, according to Powell. As an aircraft, the Aurora has all the inherent greater reliability of an aircraft versus the spacecraft. It can still successfully land if the engine fails, which is the biggest point of failure for conventional rocket-powered aircraft. It has redundant systems like commercial aircraft for things like the actuators for the aircraft's control surfaces. Powell says this makes many kinds of anomalies survivable, even significant ones, dramatically increasing the robustness of the system, even if the mission must be aborted. Dawn Aerospace lists several applications for this iteration of their space plane technology, including Earth observation, atmospheric research, climate monitoring, communications, and microgravity research. So how much demand will there be for the Aurora services? Well, Powell said that this will be a totally unique capability, so the market is somewhat unknown. Powell also acknowledges that they still have a long way to go before these vehicles reach base. He says that the current version of the airframe probably has a ceiling of 60,000 feet due to limited propellant capacity. The next version in the works they have come to call Mark IIb. Powell says the Mark IIb will be a highly optimized version using the same aerodynamic shape and basic architecture, but pushing every parameter to achieve maximum performance. Upgrades will include wing box tanks to increase propellant storage, a higher thrust engine, a lighter structure, and an RCS system so they can maneuver at altitudes above the atmosphere. The Mark IIb will be capable of flying supersonic outside of the atmosphere and eventually to over 100 kilometers altitude. So Powell also says that once the Mark II reaches its maximum potential and has begun to be commercialized, then the team will concentrate on development of the full-scale Mark III vehicle, capable of deploying an expendable second stage, which delivers a 250-kilogram satellite to low-Earth orbit. He says there are literally hundreds of airports worldwide that meet meet the basic needs of length and width to satisfy the Mark III design, each of which could support dozens of flights a day. There would be no need to build dedicated runway infrastructure, even in our wildest dreams of hundreds of space planes in daily operation. So all in all, it seems like an impressive system and a compelling concept. If you look at our website on TalkingSpaceOnline.com under episode 1503, We're hoping to include a picture of the Mark II Aurora along with the team who designed and built it. All right. Thanks, Mark. Back over to you. One of two things uh, comes to mind. I'm not sure which one is right. One is that I've heard of this before and forgotten about it, or this is the first time I've heard of it, which either way, it's really interesting in my mind to have something like this as far along as it is and have the potential that it has. Yeah, they have, uh, like I said, they've had 50 flights of this thing. And I guess the first 
47 of them were to get the airframe developed and troubleshot. Uh, they added some uh, some reinforcements here and there. They, you know, you start out, I guess, with the lightest vehicle you can, and then you uh, keep repairing it as it breaks when, all you, when you see where all the stresses are on the airframe. And so then the repairs or the reinforcements add weight back. And so that was sort of the process they were going through with this version of the airframe. So now they're just getting to the point where they're trying to get the reusable rockets, you know, that process down so that they can uh, achieve that two flights per day per, per unit. So it's a very interesting concept. And, you know, like you said, it's interesting that the market may not be there for it. Uh, you know, they have to kind of figure it out as they go because it's a, a new concept, a new, a new possibility for potential clients to use, but interesting nonetheless. And I guess the Mark III frame is going to be bigger, I assume. And I plan on trying to uh, get an interview with their CEO and get some more details about all that. That would be really cool. Cause I'm, I'm kind of wondering what, where do they see this in, in the marketplace too? What do they see this, this vehicle possibly carrying? Also, uh, how does this stack up? And this is probably my own ridiculousness. The first time you were talking about a reusable space plane, my, my first picture, of course, was the beloved space shuttle, but also the, uh, Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser. Um, I know Sierra Nevada is building both a cargo and a piloted version of this. And I'm one, and I'm wondering too, since the capacity of the, of the cargo version is, is pretty big. Where does this thing stack up and where do they think they're going to, they're going to plug this, uh, market into, you know, are, are we talking, what, what kind of satellites do they think they are going to be carrying? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And like I said, uh, the first, like the Mark II B, that wouldn't even achieve orbit. It would be suborbital. So it would be, you know, carrying payloads for however long the flight duration would be. And it might be at a very high altitude, but it wouldn't be something where they could stay in orbit as long as they wanted to. But you can still do some pretty, I mean, I, I know we're using sounding rockets and, and there are other suborbital avenues that people can take but it sounds to me too this is an option for suborbital research for testing and so on and and that's that's always a good thing when you've got more and more options even to to use suborbital space because people i think when you see here suborbital you know their eyes kind of go oh yeah right whatever well no you can do a heck of a lot of good science and good astronomy in um, a suborbital environment as well. So that's something to consider. Yeah. Um, gosh, I would have to go try to find the, uh, find the reference, but, uh, he talked about, um, the lack of research that there is in certain intervals of the atmosphere. I think he said that they call, they call it the ignorosphere. <laughs> Everybody ignores it because it's very, very hard to research it. So he figures that may be a, an avenue of exploration for finding a market. Larry, if you can get the CEO on here, that, that would be really, really neat. I, I'd, I would love to, to you know, e even if you can go ahead and have a conversation with him and kind of pick his brain a little bit and find out what uh, uh, the uh, what what market niche is he after or or what what does he think that this vehicle can go ahead and do? Um, it would be really, really superb. I'm looking forward, forward to the follow-up. Very good. All right. So next, the next subject that we've all been waiting for. Yeah, we, we I think there was a, there was a big deal over in uh, South Texas, wasn't there? I vaguely remember something about that. I'm, I can't be yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it seemed like there was uh yeah i don't know i'll, I'll tell you a story later go ahead gene <laughs> well the 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 magic moment finally happened on the morning of uh, april 20th uh the spacex starship super heavy uh finally got its its chance to uh 
to touch the sky. And well, it fell a little short of that objective. Um, and not only that, it, well, it created a stir on the ground as well. And we're going to try to go ahead and, and disseminate not only the launch itself, but kind of what the aftermath has been. And we're going to try to do it from two aspects. One, what the company is saying and, and the, some of the details around that, but also what folks on the ground have been saying in the aftermath of it and our own observations as far as what's going on. Before I even start, though, I want to preface all of my commentary with this because I've, I've been hammered a lot out there on social media for some of my comments thus far. What I w- will say offhand, this program wants this project to succeed because right now, this basically was the third mission for the Artemis program. This vehicle has been charged by NASA to deliver the uh, human landing system or the lander that the Artemis 3 and Artemis 4 missions are going to use. And I don't think there's anybody in that's listening to me right now that wants that to fail, me included. I want this to work, but there's a certain way I'd like this to work. And that is in a rational, logical way and in a way that is not going to go ahead and rip up the environment back here on Earth. Um, Larry, before we even started here, you and I were having a conversation about the launch itself. So why don't we start from there? What did you, I mean, we saw, saw this thing, um, start to, to fire up. What were your impressions? Cause I had, I know what mine were. I, I thought for sure that, oh boy, there looked like something wrong from, from the get go as soon as that thing started moving. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is su- supposed to happen. This is the first time we're seeing this vehicle launch, but it just, it just felt wrong. Well, go ahead, Larry. Well, I, the only thing that I noticed right off the bat was that it seemed like it was sliding a little bit sideways off the pad, you know, and then then turning off at a, you know, tilting over at a little bit of an angle, I guess. And that, that, that didn't look right based on previous launches I had seen of other spacecraft. But again, I thought maybe the same thing that you thought, like maybe it's supposed to do that. Yeah, I mean, Antares kind of does the same thing when it leaves the pad a little bit. You know, I believe it's called the Baumgartner maneuver, where it just kind of tips a little to the right to clear its. I mean, tips a little bit to clear the the, the tower, and it 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 finally takes off, or at least the the current iteration of Antares does that. But this just seemed weird. It really did. So it climbs up. We get through Max Q, which was a big deal. Um, first we clear the tower, which is also what was a big deal. Then we get up to Max Q. Now there was some speculation on whether or whether or not the actual nose cone for that they had, which was basically a, a dummy starship model, um, would actually stay together. And it did through Max Q. The whole vehicle stayed together through Max Q. Big deal there. Uh, but as things went on, as it ascended, we both noticed something, right? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it seemed like more and more engines were failing, uh, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the thrust trail out of the back of the rocket looked, started looking different. The other thing too, the other thing too, I noticed if you look at maybe about maybe not, and, and forgive me for, for kind of, you know, just brutering the, the, the film from this, but it, it kind of looked like around maybe 32, 33 seconds, there was some sort of a flash in the bottom of, of the vehicle right. as it was going up. And right. I, I thought for sure that, you know, that was not supposed to happen. Um, you know, you know, so I, I, I felt, okay, again, we've got problems and I'm looking at the bottom and it's showing six engines out. Now, supposedly Elon Musk said in a, uh, I guess some sort of Twitter thing yesterday, um, on Saturday, Saturday evening that they purposely launched without three engines. 
So yeah, then, I'm, looking, I'm looking at that right here. Uh, Michael Sheets uh, did a summary of uh, what uh, Musk was saying during a Twitter Spaces discussion, and he says that uh, that Musk said that there were three engines that we chose not to start. So that's why the super heavy right. booster lifted off with 30 engines, which is the minimum number of engines, he said. So, right. So the three engines didn't explode. They didn't explode. They were just not healthy enough to bring them to full thrust. So they were shut down. So it sounds like to me that wasn't a planned idea. It was, it was something that they had, had to do because those three engines were not too happy. Yeah. Can I can I relate a uh, a way back? Sure. I remember being at uh, Kennedy Space Center for and uh, apologies that I'm probably mixing up my my recollections, but it may have been the first um, cargo launch by SpaceX on a Dragon Nine. And at the press conference afterwards, uh, the you know there was a statement made that uh, you know launch was successful, reached orbit. They had, I'm going to say one engine out, out of the nine. And I remember being just shocked that, what? <laughs> you, yeah. you you didn't have 100% of your engines, 100% to cut off, and that doesn't bother anybody. And I guess one of the things that I have to remind myself of is when you have redundancy, when you have, you know, a over overbuilt sort of, system that you can tolerate things that don't exactly meet that hundred percent spec. Mm -hmm. And since I'm on a bit of a ramble here, let me give you the definition of success. Now this came out of a dictionary that I have kind of put away on a bookshelf that weighs, seems like a gazillion pounds. It was printed in 1956. And I found that sometimes definitions from way back, um, are a little better in some respects. This one doesn't really tell you anything great, but the, the word is successful. Successful, the part that I found pertinent here, was coming about taking place or turning out to be as was hoped for, having a favorable result as a successful mission. Now, in my mind, when I walk out, get in the car, and grow the, go to the grocery store, pick up my groceries and come back. Success is measured by getting there, having the car do what it's made to do, not have any failures in making the purchases in the grocery store, not having any power failures or glitches that cause their point of sale systems to go out to where you stand around for 15, 30 minutes waiting for stuff to reboot. And then of course, a, a, a event free drive home. To me, that's a successful trip to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So as we'll go on into more detail, I'd say that we have to take our count of successes step by step. And I honestly don't have any idea how many there could have been. You already mentioned clearing the tower, going through Max-Q. So there certainly were some things that went well. Stage separation, uh, no, not exactly. Uh, booster Splashing down where they expected it to? Mm, no. Uh, upper stage, same thing? Uh, no. But I'd, I'd love to, to know, and I, I don't expect we will, the number of points that were milestones on this mission. Well, if you, if, you go by, if you go by what Elon Musk said and during that Twitter Spaces discussion, he said the outcome was roughly in what I expected and maybe slightly exceeding my expectations, but roughly what, what I expected, which is that we would get clear of the pad. <laughs> so if you take what he says at face value, it was more than successful because if only because the, the rocket got clear of the pad. Yeah. So and that's, another, a real, that's a real low bar for success. And Mark, <laughs> I'll throw something in there to you. I'll, I'll, I'll throw something in there to you too. Um, the, the, uh, automatic, uh, FTS system or flight termination system was also late. So, so expect the worst and you won't be disappointed. Is that it? Yeah. I guess, I, I guess, I guess that, that's, that's the, uh, the deal here. But what really I find interesting is that 
SpaceX uh, still maintains that they're going to be ready to launch in, uh, what, two months, that they're going to fix the launch pad and be ready to go again in two months. In fact, Bill Nelson, during a uh, a hearing in front of the uh, 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 the House of Representatives House Science Committee, said that very thing that saying this is what they do this is their their agile look they'll be ready to go in two months after this and all that so he's already told that to congress the problem is this the faa has already indicated that they have placed a moratorium on all of these launches until they could complete a mishap investigation now that mishap investigation could last about three months they could be ready to go, but will they really? Because the mishap investigation, as this audience knows, may have recommendations in there that they need to follow. So that mitigation and those those steps will also have to be taken into account before a new launch license could be issued again. So I before you go buying this this two-month turnaround and we'll be ready to fly in two months again, um, that's, I, I think, a little bit optimistic. Also, if you take a look at the photographs that were there post-launch, a lot of outlets, including the, um, excuse me, the NPR outlet from uh, that area, from from the Brownsville area, um, I'm trying to get the name, name of the reporter. i Beg your indulgence here for a moment. Here we go, Gage Davilia, and I, I do I do apologize for uh, uh, for the mispronunciation. He actually got into the area and looked around uh, post launch uh, and was able to go ahead and, and shoot some footage. And if you take a look at the damage in and around the launch pad, um, it's 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 extensive. I mean, there's stuff all over the place. The problem also, too, is it looks like it hurt some an endangered area. I mean, there's there um, for endangered species and endangered wildlife. Uh, Kate, just a, a, um, a piece of geography here. The launch site is about five football fields away from a protected uh from a from protected federal land where you know you've got uh, all sorts of uh, protected birds and and endangered birds and endangered wildlife in and around that area and it looks like a lot of debris and a lot of um debris also not only from the rocket but also from the uh from the launch pad itself went into that area now, Elon Musk in that um, Twitter spaces thing saying, oh, it was just a lot of sand. Don't worry about it. Really? It went into, um, I believe, the municipality of Port Isabel. There was um, you know, particulate and silicate and whatever all over the place. And some of that is concrete. Now, with concrete, you've also got rebar. And the metals that are in that rebar and, you know, breathing all of that in, you know, you've, you may have some issues. So again, to me, this isn't really, really well thought out as far as any kind of, um, you know, flame trench or any kind of water suppression systems. The water suppression system to me, they have that they have currently is completely inadequate to the task. And the, you know, the mitigation that they say, oh, well, this water cooled plate underneath the pad is going to be the, the, the big fix. I don't think it is. Also, they're talking about a flame deflector. Um, okay, fine. Great. Where do you deflect the flame to? Not too far away. You've got the, um, the ground support systems for, for this thing, meaning the, the tanks and all the ground support equipment. On one side, on the other side, you have basically a public road. And again, you know, about five football fields away, you have a protected wildlife refuge. Um, so where are you going to deflect the flame to? Again, a, another case in point, the size of, uh, of the area. If you take a look at Launch Complex 39A, it is way bigger. 
than than the launch site over at Boca Chica. I'm not going to use the the marketing term that they use use for the for the site for a whole plethora of reasons, but um for for that area it, it's just just too small. And here we are talking about launching something more powerful than than the Saturn V with I think inadequate uh <laughs> in inadequate mitigation in plain English. And and if if you folks are so inclined, and I know this is probably going to, you know, inflame a lot of people that are listening. And okay, fine, that that's I'm I'm good with that. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Eric Eric Roche, I believe his name is. I apologize in advance if I'm mispronouncing it. He goes by ESG Hound on Twitter, and he really, really puts the case forward as to why this is not the best place in the world for this. And maybe this launch site needs to be rethought. The other thing too, and I'm going to add this, and he he points this out too, that if you're going to use like a water suppression system, aka along the same lines of the Kennedy Space Center, you're going to run into problems with the Clean Water Act because of the uh, the wildlife area. And I'm thinking maybe, just maybe, they kind of thought that this this mitigation system they set up was going to be adequate or just kind of crossed their fingers thinking it was going to be adequate. And because of that, and they tried because of the 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 regulatory thing trying to get around it, and they kind of went for broke and tried it and failed. Um you know, my my thought is look, every darn launch site has a you know a flame trench and a fire and 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 the rainbirds or the water suppression system if you're launching a large rocket wallops has got it um the kennedy space center sure as heck has it um koru has it even baikonur vasashni they they use the same kind of system for the large rockets why can't spacex do the same thing with starship well one of the one of the things that um Elon mentioned was that, uh, let me find it here. Oh gosh. Well, I can't seem to find it, but essentially saying that the rocket doesn't really, the payload doesn't really care whether or not you mitigate the sound waves with the water deluge system, because it's 400 feet away at at the top of the rocket. So whatever might whatever might be going on at the base of the rocket is attenuated by the time it gets to the payload. So so it's not an issue. And my first thought when I heard that was, okay, that maybe the payload won't care, but what about the rocket engines? Maybe they'd care. You know. Well, not only just not only just the rocket engines. What about the 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 area around the pad too? Because a lot of that isn't you know it, it's also to to mitigate the. The sound as well, because from what I understand too, the sound was extraordinarily high in the area and it was higher than, than what SpaceX actually anticipated the, the decibel level to be in and around there. And again, this was brought up, um, by several environmental groups as well in and around the, the Brownsville area about that and how it would go ahead and impact, uh, wildlife in and around that area. And it has not, you know, it, it, I, I don't know what I haven't seen any any of the reports out of there and out of the the wildlife refuge as as far as what the uh, sound impact excuse me what the sound p- impact is I do know because I did ask this was one of my questions during the first launch of the Antares launch vehicle because An- Antares launches again at Wallops Island and Wallops is just literally like a stone's throw away from um, the Shinkatig wildlife refuge or Assateague mm-hmm. Island there. And my thought was, well, maybe I should ask this question about how they're monitoring things. And they had independent monitors from both the fish and wildlife service and the, the national park service standing by watching, you know, animal behavior in and around the, um, the island as these things ascend. They also have, mo- you know, un- uh, remote monitors as well, watching to see if there's anything crazy going on. Mm-hmm. So they, they took 
some huge steps to find out what was going on over at, over at Assateague Island. My question again, um, is why can't SpaceX do the same thing? Yep. A valid point. And again, Marcus, you, you were saying, um, as far as is, was this a successful flight or not? There was a, an interesting, uh, article and I'm going to try to go ahead to see if I can, I can link this, this piece in because it really, really voiced some of the things that, that I kind of was thinking as well. It was by a gentleman by the name of Ben Kiley and his, uh, blog is, uh, called, I believe the next 30 trips. And, uh, he is a current aerospace consultant, but he is also a former, former SpaceX associate. And, uh, we were, as you were trying to define success, so was he. And he was trying to figure out, is this a success in his mind? And to quote him, quote, I don't think this was a success by any, any measure. Nuking the long, the launch site, losing a high percentage of, of the engines on a relatively short ascent, failing to even separate stages during stage separation, and then being grounded by the FAA for a full investi- investigation, um, plus the, uh, the effects on wildlife and human health are unknown. Um, this cannot be judged by as a success by any other measure. Again, also, I will point out that there was a fire as a result of this thing in the protected area. I believe it burned about 3.5 acres um, of uh, of land over there. And uh, uh, there were some photographs also of some uh, some some eggs. I believe uh, one set was a, a piping plover egg um, nest where um, – and for those of you who know what the piping plover is, it's basically an endangered shorebird. Um, there was some eggs there that were, you know, significantly damaged. And uh, you know, Lord knows if those eggs are even, you know, there were a few other eggs too that also looked like, you know, they were coated with something. And you know, Lord knows if they're they're still viable. So there's there's there is some you know, ecological damage, uh, despite what some news reports have been saying, there is some, there is significant damage to uh, the launch site. And I still don't understand how they're going to get that cleaned up in two months, but also they are in, in, in effect um, grounded from testing again, until the FAA can complete their mishap investigation. So this, Mark, again, this is not a, a success by any stretch of the imagination in my eyes either. And on my part, this is a total wild guess because, again, I've worked for the FAA and have since I was 19 years old. But I work in a totally different part. I'd have no idea exactly how the the Office of Commercial Space Transportation operates, but I would imagine that their investigation is going to be individuals and and small teams of people that will be looking into this. They'll probably be getting input from other agencies, from other organizations, and it'll take some time to put that all together. Uh, on a on a separate thought, we're talking about the noise levels. Um, if I were a corporate pilot or a commercial airline pilot. I would probably be aware of, of details, but I've often heard of uh, mitigations for, for noise around airports. That can be on aircraft that are arriving, aircraft that are departing. In some cases, they have to re-engine aircraft to be able to go to certain destinations beyond a certain time of day. In some cases, they have to have a, a pretty specific flight profile to minimize noise in areas around airports. Um, and of course you can't do that with rockets. I mean, a rocket has got to be hundred percent, 104 percent as we used to hear with the shuttle, um, of, of its, of its thrust. It, it has to work right. And it doesn't start by starting off slow and gradually speeding up and making more noise as it gets further away. Rockets don't do that. So, you know, one solution, of course, would be find a different place that's a little more remote that gets you out of some of these areas that are sensitive and areas that uh, that we'd be concerned about. 
Yeah, Mark, you, you know, one of the, that's one of the reasons why too, you have that water suppression system under there. It's also, yeah, it, it is to protect the payload up there, but it's also to, to sort of deaden the, the decibel level of, uh, of the engines over there. So basically the sound of, of the vehicle, you know, the sound the vehicles are, are making doesn't, you know, basically rip the ship apart because that was the whole thing behind, uh, the space shuttle and, and those three RS 25s that, uh, that were used the the sound suppression system underneath was basically so the whole stack didn't shake itself apart during launch um to me yeah you got the stack clear you know that that survived but you saw what it did to the ground and really i i think you need to run this through a few more drawing boards before before you do this again and mark um again you had mentioned that perhaps maybe it might be might be a good idea to move the operation. Um, when SpaceX started that area, I don't think they had this vehicle in mind. I think they had Falcon 9 in mind, and then it just sort of graduated to this vehicle. And um, it, it, the area that they have is just not conducive for launching the Saturn V there. And unfortunately, they did go through that whole process, but you know, they still got the certification to do it. Um, and I think from what we just saw on April 20th, that to me indicates that maybe we've got a failure of also the regulatory uh, apparatus here too, in that they allowed this to go on and, you know, knowing what the possible dangers were and they just you know, went ahead and fast tracked it anyway because, well, Elon. Um, that's the only thing thing I can. Uh, that's the only way I can. I can think this was this was even permitted. Well, with that in mind, it'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, with this next round. See if it does does take only eight weeks, or if uh, the regulatory process slows them down. Be interesting to see because it may also be that. Uh, the FAA and uh, EPA and whoever else might be involved, you know, learned a couple of lessons and got some reddened faces and may be taking a closer look at things the next time around. Indeed. And one thing I'm going to mention here, too, because if I don't, um, our uh, uh, our dear cat Robeson here is going to really, really pummel me later. So I, I really want to go ahead and mention this before we leave, leave the topic. Um and I will read verbatim on what she wrote to us. Um, someone should mention the massive amounts of funding that SpaceX, that SpaceX gets from the U.S. government. As we know, if not for NASA, SpaceX would not have gone out, would have just gone out of business. Part of its success story is that we have a government willing to use taxpayer dollars to support commercial innovation and as you know, people like to make everything about Elon when he did not do it alone. And Kat makes also a valid point here. It's the U.S. taxpayer. And again, that brings me full circle right around back around to that this is part of the Artemis program. The U.S. taxpayer is, well, in part subsidizing this. Um, I believe Elon said that he plans on spending uh, I think $2 billion this year on Starship, which is kind of interesting because uh, that was also what NASA had built, had uh, spent annually on SLS. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, but uh, again, the U.S. taxpayer has skin in this game and we've got to do better. And I think we can do better. I want the, again, I want this to succeed, but I want it to succeed in the right way. Are you ready for my number? Go ahead. My number is 2030. I'm probably sadly with you on that based on past history, because here's, here's the deal. If you recall exactly, I believe commercial crew was about 38 months late. This is far more complex than commercial crew. We've right now only got one contract 
with the uh, human landing system, and that is with SpaceX. I understand that NASA is putting out another, uh, you know, request for uh, not not an RFI. It's it's an RFP. I apologize. Um, that basically says we want another company to go ahead and construct another lander. And that, that I believe is going to, that contract is going to be up for bid. I believe this summer, there's probably going to be several companies going to try to to go for it. And there's going to be another review for a second lander that's going under the pretext. Congress can hang in there and provide the funding. And Mark, again, just to throw this out there, a bill that was passed just a while ago, basically cuts all the civilian uh, programs, all the all the all the civilian agencies by twenty two percent if it gets signed. So um, we'll just have to use the the wait and see um, aspect of all this and see what what happens with with the budget. We'll have to see what happens with Starship. We'll have to see what happens with the second set of HLS con- contracts. Who knows? Maybe one of those guys may be faster than than SpaceX is. We don't know. Um, and, and, and save the day or SpaceX may go ahead and say, Hey, we're still having developmental problems with this. Let's go with something else. And they may put a kludge together. I don't know, but Mark, I'm with you. You know, sadly, I think the way things are looking, I used to be an ardent believer saying that 2026, maybe 2027 will do it, but gosh, darn it. I think I'm with you on 2030 right now because it, it just seems like things are just not going our way. And you got to do it right. You got to be patient. You got to give the the engineers, the inventors time to to do the things that they do that puts together success, systems that are successful. It takes time. And one of the things that's sort of, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, it's not scary by any means, but one of the things that's an unfortunate byproduct of time in this case is that there's going to be some skilled people that are going to leave the workforce. They're going to retire out. They're going to go on to other things that, that interest them in the meantime. There's going to be people, of course, that'll come in, that'll bring in some, some new ideas and new blood. But one of the things we talked about a lot was the loss of the, um, what's the term? Is it the brain trust? Yes. From the the shuttle days. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're gone. Institutional. Yeah. They're all gone. Most of them. anyway. Well, this gets us right back to this gets us right back to what I was talking about in my introduction to myself about uh, how I felt about uh, things getting out of NASA's hands and into the hands of private industry, and we're going all the way back to you know the Apollo days. It's it's the same kind of thing, you know. Like NASA had the reputation for doing things slowly and thoroughly and by the book and as safe as they could, which didn't mean that they didn't lose anybody, never had any accidents, but. You know, it seemed like they tried. Yeah. Uh, and go ahead, Larry. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Well, and just just that that I mean, it's like we've come full circle. You know, now we're now we're talking about the same kinds of things that we talked about back in Apollo days. You know, it was the same thing then with uh, you know government working along with private industry. You know, Grumman and Boeing and all, all those guys. You know, that worked on all worked on Apollo and Gemini and all that. You know, it's like. Those companies, you know, they they may have they would not have existed if it hadn't been for those kind of government contracts, as well as, uh, you know, military contracts with the Air Force and whatnot. So, you know, it's it's the same thing. All I'm going to say for all the 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 SLS haters out there. And um, yeah, it took a heck of a lot of time. Yeah. Believe me, there's a lot to complain about the way things went with that. But gosh, darn it. Um, back last year, uh, Artemis one had a unqualified successful mission on its first shot. SLS performed and performed well. Um, and now we have Starship going the thing that was going to go ahead and basically take over and, you know, save the planet and, and save everything and, cost a whole bunch of money and get us to Mars and all that. And it's first mission. Well, it kind of fell short. Um, so, okay. And, and people have been yelling and screaming at me. 
oh, I don't understand the area of design and all this. Well, yeah, I do. We used it for software development and it works wonders on, on the, uh, on the software testing bench. But if your program blows up on the software pe- testing bench, it doesn't, you know, foul up a, uh, a township six miles away and it doesn't destroy property and it doesn't, you know, go ahead and destroy valuable wetlands. Rockets are, are a different deal than software. And I think, I think maybe some of these Silicon Valley sort of mentality could, could probably look at that, what happened on uh, April 20th and say, yeah, maybe this isn't the way to go. Maybe we have to do it the tried and true way. Very good. I'll mention this. Uh, just prior to the end of the shuttle program, I talked to NASA astronaut Michael Barrett, and I'd have to actually find my recording and replay it. But I think I was asking him in general about his thoughts about being an astronaut in the space program at that time as they were looking at the, the shuttle program winding down and the final launch and the last mission. And he said, this is an incredible time to be part of this. This is the most exciting time. People think that something is ending. He said, there are incredible things ahead. he said, this is a, a very exciting time to be part of this business. So uh, by no means are we ringing the bell for the end of, of everything. I, I think there'll be, like we've already said, some changes, some improvements, and some things that'll take us to the future and get us to the goals that we have successfully. Well said. And with that, shall we wrap up? I'm right there with you, Mark. If so, this is Mark. Uh, You can get in touch with us via links on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Go to About the Team, and you'll see some links about the team. We'll have to get Larry added in there. But you've always got mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. And uh, we appreciate your input, your thoughts. Uh, We're going to go where y'all want us to go. A lot of what we talk about is things that interest us, but you bring us something that like Larry did that I wasn't aware of. And it's like, Hey, wait a minute. We need to pay more attention to this. So please do share with us. And before we go, I just want to give a really quick shout out to the team. I just got off working with, um, I was in a uh, local stage production here at a community theater, Pax Amicus Castle Theater in Bud Lake. I just want to go ahead and give the folks that I worked on, um, they haven't got a clue with. Um, that was the stage production, the name of the stage production I wor- worked on. They were a bunch of great people. And we've, you know, we've only stopped uh, just for, you know, a few hours ago. And I miss them already. They were just a grand group of people. And thank you so much for allowing me to work with you. Very good. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for thanks for welcoming me into your family, your team, uh, and I'm happy to be here. And uh, hopefully, we'll be doing this for a long time. Indeed, Larry. I'm looking forward to the follow up on that one um, on, on that first story. Yeah. Very good. We'll work on it. And with that, we'll catch you on the flip side. See ya. Mm-hmm.